Okay, good afternoon everyone. It's great to see you. So we were in South Africa recently and um, got to have lunch with um, a couple that are really good friends of ours and he told us a story. He's um, been renting out his home. He had put it on the market to sell it and a guy had come in and said, look, I'd like to buy your home. I need to raise the money, but I'm going to move in now and I'll pay you a rental until such time as I can secure the financing to buy the home. All seemed well and good. And it was a price, it was the upper end of the price that he was looking for, so he thought, this is great. Put the guy into the home, the guy paid his rental the first month, paid part of the rental the second month, and then stopped paying the rental after that. And for now nearly a year, the guy hasn't been paying the rental in the home. He has tried everything. He's gone to the courts, this guy's got a very good lawyer, and he's working the system. And my friend is being filled with a, an incredible sense of frustration at the injustice. And I can understand that. And um, he's... He, he's tempted now to do something. I mean, he's a Christian man. He said, look, I, I don't want to be doing anything outside the law of the land or the law of God to this man, but like I'm, I'm getting desperate here. And so I said to him, I said, have you prayed about it? I mean, have you really prayed? Not like, God, won't you please do something about this on, you know, as you're driving along in your car, but setting aside some time to really warfare over this thing that the justice of God may come. When we sing that song, let heaven come down, we're not talking about a, a silver mist that will fill this room and we all feel all shaky like this. When we speak about heaven coming down, we're talking about the nature of God coming down, justice, peace, and righteousness coming into this earth. When we sing heaven come down, it's a song of revival. It's a song that, that transforms a society. And I said to him, have you, have you prayed? And honestly, I was quite shocked with his answer. He said, no, I haven't. He, he is this thing has almost killed him. He is so frustrated. I mean this. He is, it's taken its toll on him physically, and yet he hasn't gone before God in specific prayer in the thing. And just before I, I left for the summer, I shared the testimony about how I felt like God had spoken a word to me for a situation in my life where, where there was something that I knew this is where God wanted it to be, as much as you can know things. You know, I, I had a real sense in my inner being that this is where it should be, but it was here, and there was a gap between the two. And so I decided one day I was just going to set some time out in the morning, and I set out an hour. It doesn't seem like a lot of time to be praying to something, but I wasn't reading the Word in that hour. I wasn't praying about various things. I just took this one subject and prayed over it for an hour, just kept praying, just kept going to the throne, kept declaring over this thing. And uh, it's quite unusual what happened was that, because that, um, normally we can pray through things that it can take a while for them to manifest for us, and we mustn't give up, and we must continue to persist in prayer. But in this instance, that very afternoon, I got the news that a breakthrough had come. And so I was reminded again of the power of prayer. Linda and I were in the, the mountains with our kids, and we were having one evening, we'd had a situation with one of our children, not Hannah, we never have a situation with her, she's perfect all the time. Um, but uh, obviously one of our boys, and we were like wrestling through that evening in bed, and kind of like... The anguish of it, you know, like we, we were helpless. We, we felt powerless in the situation in terms of what to do. And uh, I turned to Lynn and I said, instead of us being powerless or anxious, let's pray. And so we began to pray that night. And so we, we prayed, not for long, we just prayed. We brought the thing before God. The very next day, there was an opportunity that opened us for us to be able to um, speak into the situation and begin to make some progress with it. And so we started to pray every night after that. We've prayed every night since then. Um, together as a couple over our family and over various situations, over the church, over the calling of God. There was one night on, on Tuesday I came to work for the first, it was my first full day back at work. 
and um, it was a, at a few meetings, what, a couple of them were tough on the way home eventually, because we had the pre-mini at 6, the full day of work, at 5.30 I was heading home, and I was hit by a truck in my car, nothing dramatic, just smashed the car up, but it was just some more drama at the end of the day, and, um, and then I, by 8 o'clock I was in bed, I was <laughs> absolutely shattered, I've, I don't think since I've been at, um, at school have I been to bed that early, so Linda had to climb to bed, and she just had to take my hand and pray without me because I was already asleep. I feel like I'm hearing myself on the speaker a little bit here. Um, but again, it was just this reminder, friends, of the power of prayer. And the, this preaching series that I want to do over the next while, we're going to do as an eldership from Matthew 6, is entitled Leaning on Omnipotence. And it comes from a, a quote by W.S. Bowden. And he says this, prayer is weakness leaning on omnipotence. Omnipotence is obviously a fancy word that means that God, He is omnipotent, He has all power. He is, he, is, he is completely powerful, completely almighty, and we are not. And the, in the situation that my friend finds himself in, where he cannot get justice, where the situation where we needed the breakthrough in our life, where I was praying for my mom, and there was a, a medical thing that needed to be dealt with, in all of those instances, I, my weakness was absolutely evident, but we get to lean on God. And so that's why we want to get into this. I feel like this is a significant season for us as, we, as God wants to bring breakthrough. I felt during worship this morning as we're praying that some of you have come here today and there's a situation you're facing and you are at the point of wanting to give up. I think some of you may even have said on the way here, I'm going to give up if I don't get a breakthrough. And God is saying that breakthrough is imminent, but we have to partner with Him to see the breakthrough come. And I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about everything just being easy and no difficulties at all. I'm talking about facing the challenges and getting through them by the grace of God to the other side so that in it, His name is glorified, His kingdom comes, and His will is done. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 6. It's 20 past 12. I'm beginning my preach. Okay. Just want to take a time check here. And when you pray... And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have been forgiven our debtors. And lead us not, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Alexander McLaren, um, a uh, well-renowned preacher who's now gone to be with the Lord, says this about this prayer. He says, We teach it to our children, and its divine simplicity becomes or fits well their lisping tongues and little folded hands. He means that we can teach it to our children, and it works for them. They can pray this prayer, and, it's, and it works. And he goes on and says, But the more we ponder it and try to make it the model of our prayers, the more wonderful does its fullness of meaning appear. There is everything in it, he says. The loftiest or the highest revelation of God in His relations to us 
and His purposes with the world. The setting forth of all of our relations to Him, to His purposes, and to one another. The grandest vision of the future for mankind and the care for the smallest wants of each day. What a beautiful description of this prayer, and we're going to unpack it over the next few weeks. But I can remember praying this prayer before I'd come to Christ, and it didn't carry all of this weight. I come from South Africa, as you know, and it has a, has a Christian heritage. And so in many of the schools, you were required to pray the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of the day. And so we would have assembly, and, and 700 boys would be told to stand, and there would be this, as they got up from the ground, we, we sat on the floor, we didn't even have chairs. I don't know why, whatever, we had no chairs in the hall. We stood up, and we, uh, and we all went together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. Or whatever way around, I've got that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then we would walk out of the hall like this. And, the, and it just didn't mean anything to us. It was just words that we said. It was only later when I came to know Christ that I, I remember standing up in that hall as a, as a young man who had met Christ and began to declare those words with, with a conviction, with a faith, with a, a sense of like something's being accomplished as I pray that. And when I ended with those words, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, I would, I would kind of declare it out over the school as I began to say it. And Jesus is teaching us how to pray, but he starts off in, a, in a, like the preamble to it to show us some of the things, some of the obstacles to meaningful prayer, some of the things that can hinder us as we come into prayer. He starts in chapter 6 and verse 1, and he says, yeah, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen. He said, he, he's warning us that sometimes our, our motivations for coming in prayer can undermine the whole act of prayer that, we, that we're wanting to walk through. When we do our new members' dinner, which we're going to do um, this week at Wednesday, depending on how many of you, it'll probably be at our home. Um, but we, we talk about what our mission is as a church. And so our mission, our true north, is to make disciples of all nations. And we've articulated that by saying that we are forming family, transforming nations for the glory of God. That's our true north. But we can make disciples in various ways. I could, for example, be a... Um, a harsh leader or a manipulative leader, and I could preach in such a way that I use guilt and condemnation to get you to drive you to this work of sharing the gospel with people. Or I could manipulate you with the scriptures, and, and the outcome in some sense would be the right outcome. You'd be out there preaching the gospel you, because your pastor's rough and mean and he's going to point you out to whatever. But there's a, there's a way of doing things that is the Bible way. And, the, and, and those are our values that guides us and, and um, ensures that we don't step kind of out of God's ways in accomplishing God's purposes. Well, prayer is the same as well in some ways. We can pray, but if we come with the wrong motivations, if we come with the wrong understanding, our prayer can become ineffective. And so, we, we, so Jesus comes and He encourages us to pray. He obviously wants us to pray. In fact, He expects us to pray. He doesn't say, if you pray, if you pray. He says, when you pray. Verse 5, when you pray. Verse 6, when you pray. Verse 7, when you pray. Um, but what he does expect is for us to pray in a way that doesn't waste our time, that doesn't render us ineffective. And there's two specific things he warns us about. Number one is about hypocrisy. He's, he, what, what he was speaking to, the Jews would pray at 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. And there would be, often there would be busy market at that time. And so they would go stand on the street corners at the time of prayer and make sure that everybody was watching could see them pray. I remember reading a, it was like a, um, 
I don't know, like a, it's a book, but it was a written, for, a humorous book was written by, it's a Christian guy, um, the diary of Adrian Platt, is that what it's called? Something like that, anyway, whatever it was called. And the guy talks about how he was wanting to give some money to his neighbor because he felt like God had laid it on his heart to give money to the neighbor. So he, was, he understood that he needed to give in secret, and so he wrote on the envelope with his left hand so that the guy wouldn't possibly recognize his handwriting, and then he, he leopard crawled from his house to the neighbor's house like this and, and stuck the envelope into the neighbor's post box so the neighbor wouldn't see him because he knew it was important that he did in secret. But then after he put the envelope in, he stood up. And he kind of walked slowly backwards and forwards like this because in his heart, he was really hoping the neighbor would see him outside the post box and be able to connect together the envelope and the gift and the person that had given it. And there's a part of us that we understand the scriptures and the truth and like we, we want to be spiritual from the inside out, not from the outside in. But there's another part of us that wants to be seen for our spirituality. And Jesus is saying that we need to come before him not with one eye open to see who's watching us pray, who's hearing the words that we pray, but actually with faith in God that we pray. It's one of the reasons why we turn the lights down when we worship, so that you're not worried about the person next to you when you're worshiping. What are they, what are they thinking? What do they think about the fact that I've got my hands up or my hands aren't up or whatever else? It's between you and God as you worship and as we come together to worship Him. And prayer isn't reminding God. It's not like God went on a holiday for a month and he's just got back and you say, God, while you've been away, let me tell you what happened. You know, I've, uh, this situation has happened with one of my children. and just w w No, no, God, Jesus tells us, knows everything before we even ask him what it is. And so we're reminding ourselves that we live dependent upon him. That's what prayer is. It's a, it's a sacrament of, of remembering that I am dependent upon God. Every time we come to him in prayer, we're reminded, Lord, I need you. I am weak, but I'm leaning on omnipotence. And then it's also an act of worship. When we come to God and we pray, our declaration of penance is something that comes as a fragrant offering to Him in heaven as well. The second thing Jesus warns about are meaningless repetitions, like me when I was at school, just kind of saying it over and over again. And some people, I'm, I don't know, maybe they think this, they just, they're going to just say the same thing over. If I say it enough, God will hear me. God hears us the first time we pray. We might need to pray again and again and again until we see the breakthrough. But we're not going to get the breakthrough just because of many words. We get the breakthrough because we persevered in faith before God. And so we don't want to be speaking faithless, fruitless, pointless prayers. And so Jesus continues in verse 9. He says, pray then like this. And he gives us what is known as the Lord's Prayer. Um, but actually it's the disciples prayer it's a prayer that we as disciples should be praying but he's not advocating those specific words that need to be prayed in that order all the time it's not like we have to wake up in the morning and the first thing we need to do is pray this prayer to protect us or like some sort of incantation that we say to safeguard our day what we see instead here is a guide or a pattern that'll shape our prayer and our prayer life as we move forward it'll help us to grow in intimacy with God and to be more effective in power. And that's my hope over this time as we go through this prayer, is that your prayer life will grow, that there will be greater intimacy between you and God in prayer, because it is an act of intimacy. More than it's listing these things like this, we should come away from our time of prayer, even though we, and we do list the things, we do petition God, we do ask Him to intervene in these situations, but we come away as if I've spent time with my Father, I come away with the fragrance of Him upon my life like this. And so to grow in intimacy, to grow in effectiveness in our prayer, 
so that it becomes something that is life-giving to us. And so we're going to dive into that now. And the first thing that we can see in this prayer is that it's God first. Look at the, look at the structure of, of uh, the prayer that Jesus gives us. The first half of it, let's go to the next slide, Kenty. Um, the first half of the, above the line there is, is your name, your kingdom, your will. The first half of our prayer is about God. It's not about us. I'm not praying, Lord, let my will be done. Lord, I'm not praying, let my kingdom come. Let my name be whatever. I'm praying to God that His will be done. It's about God. The second part is all about us and our daily needs and our life. Give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. And so the pattern of Scripture is God first, man second. His glory before our needs. And this parallels the Ten Commandments as well. The first four commandments are all about God, about His nature, about who He is. Um, there is no God, I have no God beside me, no idols, no um, images of me, and do not use my name in vain. And then the next are all about us reflecting Him and His nature in our lives and harmony and peace with Him and harmony and peace with each other. And, um, and so that's the pattern. But so often we do the opposite, don't we? We rush into prayer with our needs. Um, Linda and I find ourselves doing that that night when we were wrestling over this one thing. We just went into the presence of God and just said, God, please will you do A, B, C, D. And as I began to study this prayer and we were reminded of this, we began to shift our prayer pattern to first come and honor God for who He is. Fix our eyes upon Him. And the reason is because if we come with our lists, if we come and pray for just like this is the trouble I'm facing, this is the difficulty I have, that becomes the area of focus in our lives instead of God being our focus. We just focus on the trouble. We focus on our lack instead of focusing on the one that becomes our, uh, our provision. And no wonder then prayer can feel like a bit of a slog. It, it lacks the joy. You come into prayer and all you're doing is listing all the time your items before God. It just feels like, it, just, it doesn't feel life-giving to us. So Jesus shows us a pattern that prayer begins with God. And we come into His presence and we take a slow, calm, reassuring look at God. We contemplate his incredible eagerness and kindness towards us, that he, he, he longs to give to us. If I, as a sinful man, can understand what it means and desire to bless my own children, how much more will God, who's perfect, want to bless us? And so we, we come in, you're not coming to twist God's arm. You're not coming to trick him into blessing you and, and answering your prayer. You're coming to the one who desires to give to you. In Romans it says that having not withheld his own son, how much more will God not give us? All things. And so we come to him, we reflect on who he is, his incredible, unwearied patience with us. Sorry, sorry, Father, I've made a mistake again. I'm, I messed up. He's, he's patient. Won't you forgive me? Yes, he will. His untiring love for us. And so he has three quick handles that help you to put God first when you come in prayer. Number one is meditation. Psalm 77 verse 12 says this, I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Unlike other religions and other practices, meditation in the Christian faith is not to empty our minds of everything. We don't come and just take everything out and just try and get like nothing in our minds. It's actually to bring our focus onto something, to focus on some aspect of the nature of God, some scripture that describes who God is or something or some act of God that has been manifest in our lives. And so we come to contemplate Him. We put aside other things and let that one thing become the focus for us. 
Maybe you've been through a difficult time and there's some things that you want to bring before God in prayer and, and, you, and you choose to come in the morning and, and there's some nature, attribute of God that you focus on. It might be His faithfulness. I love the faithfulness of God. Faithfulness means this. It means I will do what I said I will do. That's what it means. What a beautiful description, eh? And I might focus on the faithfulness of God. Not one of the promises of God, said Joshua, have failed to come to pass. So I just, I just focus, just meditate on the faithfulness of God. Before I even come into prayer, before I ask Him for one thing, I'm meditating on who God is. The second thing we do is we worship. Um, come, and by that I mean the act of actually singing songs, of lifting our voices in praise. I'm, uh, I'm not the world's best singer. I don't think I'm the world's worst singer, although my children and my wife do tell me again and again to stop singing when I do break out into song. Um, I, um, but I, I can remember I, I went to youth camp once when I was a, a young man, young boy, and uh, the guy that was teaching, whoever it was, I don't know where he got this teaching from, but I loved it anyway. He said, he said, our worship goes up as we worship together. It goes up like a blanket towards God. And if, you, if you're not engaged in worship, there's like a hole in the blanket. Well, man, I was never going to leave a hole in any blanket, any time, any meeting I got into. And not only was I going to fill my hole, I was going to fill your hole just in case you're not worshiping properly as well. I want the whole blanket to go up to God. And so I've, I love worshiping God. I consider it a privilege. Well done, Timmy and her team. Where's Timmy? She's outside. There she's at the back over there. She's not bunking. She's at the back there. This is the second time Timmy said worship here at Will of Life. And Timmy, you did such an amazing job this morning. Honestly, outstanding. Why don't we give her a hand? It's a privilege for me to be able to worship at the 9.30 meeting and, and there's such an incredible sense of God's presence and come again at 11.30. I know some of you don't get that privilege, but, uh, but I love that. And I, I incorporate that worship into my personal times. Before I come and pray, I come and worship to God. Maybe you turn on a song that has become meaningful to you. I've got a, I've got a playlist that, is, that I, I go through almost... It's the same, over, every now and again, I'll add a different song, but I, there's a playlist I'll go through that leads me into the presence of God, that focuses my, my mind on God and who He is. I was driving out to go cycling on Saturday morning, singing. In fact, I was singing a song about, I was singing this, Let Your Kingdom Come. I was just saying, Let Your Kingdom Come. Let Your Kingdom Come. I was bringing in worship to God. Let it come. Let it come in my life, Lord. Because when the kingdom comes, the king comes. I want Jesus to come. Let your kingdom come in my life. Let it come in my family. Let it come in this church. Let it come in this city. I began to sing this to God like that. And then lastly, memorials. In uh, Joshua um, chapter 4 and verse 6 and 7, I think it is, it says, When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it, par when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. There are things that God does in our lives that we that we to remember, we to, we to kind of put a pile of stones, and when we come to them again, we see them, we know what they represent. When um, we first came into ministry, before we came into ministry, Linda was practicing as a psychologist, and I was an accountant in a company, and we were, we were doing quite well, and then we left uh, business, and we came into ministry, and our, our income went from there to there, and so there were certain things that perhaps we might want to give our kids that we couldn't give them in the same way as before. You don't have to ever feel sorry for us. God has made it up a thousand times over, honestly. And, and not even just with other things um, in terms of other ways of blessing us. He has blessed us financially in His kindness again and again as well. 
And, um, but there was one situation, Matthew's a drummer. Um, from when he was two years old, he, my son would just drum on something. We, um, we, it nearly drove us mad, but he would, he would drum all the time. And even now, he just, he'll be standing there doing nothing, and suddenly he'll just break into drumming, like, like this, like this. Kind of we all get a bit of a fright around him when he does it, you know. But he was nine years old. He was quite a good drummer. I think he was drumming at Well of Life when he was 12 or 13 or something like that. He was a, um, clearly a, a, a gift upon his life. And, uh, but we, he didn't have a set of drums, obviously. And then a friend of Linda's one day got a hold of her. She had been playing drums, a lady in our church, and said, I don't want to play drums anymore. Would you like these drums? And so we went across and picked up these drums. It was a, apparently a good set. It was a set of Yamahas. I don't know what they were, whatever. They were drums for me. And we brought them back to the house, and we set them up in, the, in a room outside of our house, because that's one thing I do know about drums is that they're noisy. We set them up somewhere else. And Matthew played a little bit on these drums, and he was like, oh, his eyes were like this. And as we walked up um, from having set the drums up, I said to him, I said, you know what, my boy? Even if I was still working for the company that I was employed by, I wouldn't buy these set of drums for you. I said, they're too extravagant. This is, this is, this is too much, but this is the nature of God. We sang about El Shaddai, the God of more than enough. That's what he is. And so those drums have become, in my conversations with Matthew, like a memorial. They remind me. And when I come into a situation in prayer, and I'm, I'm going to be, trusting God for something. I, I need Him to be Jehovah Jireh. I need Him to be the one that provides. I can remember back, God, You are the provider. You, you've, you don't just give enough. You give more than enough. Even if I was a, like a top guy in this company, I would, not have, I would not have been that extravagant. You are that extravagant to us. And so we have these remor- memorials that lead us into prayer. And then in verse 9, the beginning of our prayer goes like this, Our Father in heaven. And um, one of the things that you'll notice is that it's not a personal pronoun, but it's a plural. I mean, it's, a, it's not a singular pronoun. It's a, it's, a, it's a plural, not just my Father. Jesus didn't say, when you pray, pray my Father. He said, pray our Father. In fact, none of the pronouns in there are singular at all. It's always us, give us, lead us, forgive us, deliver us. And what that means is while this prayer can and should be used in our personal prayer times, it's actually meant for community prayer. It's a pattern for us to pray in community. One of the wonderful things that has happened with the gospel, the wonderful, beautiful gospel, as we were breaking bread this morning, Linda and I and Hannah, um, Linda and I did in the first service, we just said, Lord, I want, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you that we were lost and now we're found. We're on the road of destruction and now we have eternal life. You've accomplished this through the death and the resurrection of your son. We remind ourselves of this, this beautiful gospel. But not only has the gospel restored us in our vertical relationship with God that was severed, it's restored us this way as well. The horizontal divisions between us have been taken out by culture or race or economics or whatever it is that we divide ourselves on, we're not divided anymore. We've become brothers and sisters. In fact, it says in that passage, our Father. We have the same Father, and so we are brothers and sisters together. We, our, our bringings might be so different. Our, our, even our our view of the world and the things we like to eat or like to do may be so different, but we are brothers and sisters. We're one family. And there's something significant about that because it means that we take ownership of each other. See, when, when something goes wrong with our children, we don't need someone to come to us and say, you should be praying for your children like, like, or you should be, you should be um, carrying your children. Like, we can't help carry our children. They're, they're our children. We, we, like, we carry them. In the same way, we shouldn't be, have to be told to carry others in the body of Christ. 
This is our family. This is who we lift up. If I hear that somebody is struggling, my first response should be, I want to go to our Father and begin to pray and intercede for them. One of the signs of Christian maturity is eradication of selfishness. You know, when kids are small, it's, every, it's all about them. It's me, my, I. They, uh, you know, one of the things that they talk about when children grow up is that they learn how to share. It's not natural to a child. They're, they're egocentric. Everything is about themselves in the beginning. I'm hungry. I need food. No one's paying attention. They know what they're doing. They're getting your attention. Sort me out. My nappy's wet. Sort me out. It's all about me. As they grow older, little Johnny learns how to share his toy truck with Billy. Like he, that's something he learns. And as he grows older and older, the selfishness goes down. The, the egocentric goes down, and he becomes aware of people around him. He, he can read people's faces. He can see that somebody is sad, that somebody needs to be comforted or encouraged or celebrated with or whatever. And the same thing happens in Christian maturity. We go from being newborn believers who our prayers are all about ourselves. Help me, Lord Jesus. Help me do this. Help me get that breakthrough. Help me get this job. And eventually, as we grow, our prayers begin to change. Help them. Help them. Help them. So that we're hardly even praying for ourselves. That uh, pattern of prayer that I've taught before is, is to pray for those that are closest to us, to pray for those that you lead, those that lead you, those that you're in covenant with, and last of all, pray for your own needs. We are the, we're the pinky on the hand of life as we pray. That's what mature prayer looks like. And so God calls us into this place of praying together for one another and for others that are out there. And that pattern of praying together as believers is ingrained in the Scripture. The book of Acts speaks again and again. It speaks about they devoted themselves to prayer. They were praying together. Um, why don't you put up the slide, all the different um, scriptures. And uh, one of the things you'll see in this is that, um, is that more than speaking about like worship meetings or preaching meetings is the church is called to pray together. We are called to do that. We don't have ignite prayer and unite prayer because We've got nothing to do in the week. We believe this is a fundamental mandate of the church to pray together. And so many of you have been to our Ignite Prayer Times, and many of you have been to, well, not that many, to the Unite Prayer Times. You've got the opportunity in two weeks' time on the 22nd to join us. But there is a mandate upon the church to be praying together and to be praying for one another. In the epistles, the letters that are written by um, Paul and Peter and John and James, there are constant references to the fact that Paul says, I'm, I'm here with whoever, Timothy and Silas, and we are praying for you. Together we are praying, and we are grateful for your prayers towards us. And he's speaking to them as the whole church. And so there's this, there's this call upon us to be praying together. And there's a, three reasons why we should pray together. Number one is a shared faith. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14, I think you are, it says that the strong must help the weak. If you are if you're blessed this morning, if you're walking in victory, if, if like everything is just like sunshine and roses in your life right now, I'm, I'm so glad, genuinely, I, that's wonderful. But God has done that in your life that you might be a strength to somebody who's not in that place right now. Maybe somebody is struggling in their faith. Maybe somebody's path is, is darkened by a shadow right now and you need to be there at this side praying with them for them to break through. Our strength is meant by God to be a prop for those who are weak. And you're strong now, maybe later on you won't be, and somebody else will be that for you. Or maybe you're weak now, and as you are strengthened, you can become that strength for somebody else. I, I had a Zoom call with Jiva this week, 
You guys will know that Jiva and Susan are a couple that we work with in India. Jiva is working all over the place. And he was telling me about what's taken place in Manipur, which is a state right um, in the north of India. Um, and the reason why it's quite significant is we had just, I was in Nagaland earlier this year, and a lot of the students that were at this course I was at were from Manipur, the state right next to it like this. But apparently there's been an outbreak of violence in Manipur. It's been in the newspapers here, and um, there has been, um, uh, women have been stripped naked in the streets, beaten, raped. Um, 70,000 apparently have been displaced from their homes. Hundreds of churches have been burnt down. And Jeeva said, although it's been spoken of as a tribal conflict, it's actually, it's a, it's a persecution of the Christians in the place. And um, we're safe. We're strong. We're blessed. And God wants us to, in our shed, but as, our, as we're strong now, to be praying for them. But some of them cannot be lift their own hands up right now. We need to be lifting them up. And we'll have an opportunity to do that in a moment. And that's why it's important for us to pray together. The second thing is the power of agreement. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 32, or chapter 32 and verse 30, it says that one puts to flight a thousand and two ten thousand. And it, 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 it gives us the idea of a principle of exponential power in agreement. Like when, when if, if I pray for something, there's a certain amount of power. If Dylan comes and agrees with me, it's not double, it's tenfold what it was before. If Sahar joins us in that prayer, it's multiplied again. If we all come into agreement here, there's a power in agreement. And I'm not sure exactly if that's a principle that God intends to come from that scripture, but we certainly do see it in Matthew 18, verses 18 to 20, when Jesus says this. He says, truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus goes truly, truly, or verily, verily, it means like you can, you can count on this. Like this is a really important thing. I'm going to tell you, pay attention. He says this, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now he talks about us gathering in his name, which means that our prayer has got to be prayed in accordance with his will. I'm not asking Sayer to come here and agree for a cherry red Ferrari for me, because I don't believe that's the will of God for my life. I, I do mean that. If you have one for me, who knows? I don't know. But anyway, my point is, but I am confident when we prayed, for example, for these young people to go to Sri Lanka, that it's the will of God that they would be anointed and protected as they go. And so we can be certain as we come into agreement and pray it, that it will be done because we're praying in accordance with His will. There's power when we come in agreement. I think one of the difficult things is that we spend too much time praying on our own and not enough time praying with other people. It might be worthwhile getting a hold of a, a friend that you say, once a week, let's get together before work and let's spend 30 minutes in prayer over things that are important in your life and things that are important in my life. Maybe like Linda and I are doing, each night before you go to bed, you, you pray with your spouse or you pray with your children over things that matter and contend with God for them to come to pass because there's power in agreement. The last reason why we pray together, and I'll land with this, is because it's the place where we learn to pray. Eugene Peterson in his wonderful book called The Contemplative Pastor, says this. He says, if somebody comes to me and says, teach me to pray, I say, be at this church at nine o'clock on Sunday morning. That's where you learn how to pray. Of course, prayer is continued and has alternative forms when we're by yourself. But the American experience, because that's his context that he's writing from, but, but actually it's true all around the world, has the order reversed. 
in the long history of Christian spirituality, community prayer is most important, and then individual prayers. We pray on a, the first Wednesday of the month, normally the, thirst, the third Tuesday of the month in the morning. This month will be the fourth one. We pray, uh, the elders gather together, and we pray every Tuesday morning. We pray in our connect groups, I hope. We have opportunities for us to pray corporately. I hope you pray in your families. But there is something that's learned about prayer when we pray together. Not because there's a lesson, A, B, C, D, but actually we learn from watching other people and participating in it. I love the fact that children learn languages so quickly. I was at the Arabic um, congregation yesterday and I was preaching there. One of the ladies afterwards um, was trying to teach me some Arabic words and I, um, she taught me two words about how to greet somebody in Arabic. It was not a word I've heard before, like fanak or something like that, filifak or something, I don't know, whatever the word was. Um, she told me, she told me the word about a hundred times. It went in my brain and went out the brain on the other side. I like, it's like, it's like a wind tunnel that just goes through in my head. I, I, how do children learn whole languages? They're two years old. They've got like 10,000 words in their heads and they're able to use them in the right way. And they don't go to school. We can't teach them about trigonometry at two years old. They learn it just from being around people that are talking. Somebody points to a chair. Matthew used to point up at the sky and go, Erdoplane, plane." By that he meant aeroplane. But he, that word went from that weird contortion of a word to the proper word, and, and now he speaks properly. It's quite amazing. My point is, is that as we come around people that are praying, we learn to pray. You, maybe somebody, as we gather this morning, we pray um, at 9 o'clock before the, the two services. As we gather to pray, maybe you come in and you've got nothing to say the first time you come into prayer, or the second time, or the tenth time, or whatever it is, but you're learning how to pray. And you go from that place, back to your secret closet, back to your room where you pray or, the, or as you pray as you drive to work in the morning. And something of that prayer that you've been a part of it informs and affects and shapes the prayer that you're going to begin to pray. And that's how we grow and we learn our prayer language and learn how to pray together. And we're going to put that into practice today. Why don't you put up the last slide, please? And I know... I know what it's like. I've, I've sat in your chairs as well, and after the guys finished preaching, I'm thinking, just land the meeting. Don't make us do stuff. I just want to go get my coffee and get out of here. Or maybe you've brought a, a friend with you, and you think, oh, why is he doing this today? I've just brought this person along. They're going to feel so uncomfortable. But um, it's not going to be that uncomfortable. We are just going to spend a few minutes in prayer for Manipur. I, um, those, that's a picture there of the students that Saj and I were with in whenever we were there now my brain is so I think it was March we were in um, Nagaland with these students from Manipur and they um, I got a hold of Tony who, who runs the um, the course there and he tells me that they're all fine a couple of them are in Delhi some of them are in um, Dimapur where Tony is and there are a few that are in Manipur but they're, they're fine he's checked with them they're fine they had actually started a meeting they were meeting every Sunday night and they've had to stop that because of the violence that's gone on and the kind of anti-Christian sentiment. But there are um, brothers and sisters of ours that are as much our brothers and sisters as um, the men and women that are gathered in this room here and as much as our actual family that are in Manipur that have suffered um, the persecution that's gone. There are churches that have been burnt down. Um, there are um, women that have been violated. And uh, we want to stand together with them this morning. Not, not that this would be the only time we pray about this. Um, this, You can see from that article that this has actually been going on um, from early July, just after we actually went on leave. Um, but it's, 
It's to teach us and to remind us of how important it is to pray. And so what I'm going to ask this morning is, I'm going to kick us off as we pray. We're going to stand in a moment. I'm going to kick us off as we pray. And I want you to come in agreement. There's a power in agreement. We remember that. And then maybe one or two of you want to come out here. Eyes will be closed. People won't be watching you. And just lead us in a prayer for Manapur as well. I'll pray. Somebody else can pray. And then uh, Dylan can land the prayer. And then we'll, we'll finish with, with, with singing our Father again. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Remind us that you are our Father. Remind us that we're part of a family. Not only is that an incredible comfort to us and a strength to us, but also a responsibility for us. That these people are my brothers and my sisters, and I am my brother's keeper. And Lord, as we come before you today, I thank you that we can um, come and pray, not just for our own needs, but for the needs of others within this, this family. We can pray for those men and women in Manipur that have been affected by this violence, this outbreak of demonic attack against the church. Lord, I pray for those women who have been humiliated in the streets and their clothes were torn from their bodies, Lord God. I pray for those that have been violated and raped, Lord God. I pray that you would do what only you can do as you comfort them and heal them, Lord. Jesus, you are the one that was betrayed and violated, stripped naked and hung upon the cross. You do not come from an ivory tower to speak to them about what they go through. You know what they face, Lord Jesus, and you are the one that can comfort them and strengthen them in this hour. And we pray, Lord God, that you'd be with them, that you would meet with those, those ladies, especially your daughters, Lord God, that you would begin to minister from the inside out, that you would cause and the wells of healing to overflow in their lives, Lord God. Just, just cause them to overflow, we pray, Lord Jesus. Lord, I don't know where they are right now, in villages, scattered in refugee camps, Lord God, perhaps in their father's houses, I don't know. But I pray that your hand of comfort would be upon them. We pray, Lord God, that your hand of comfort would be upon them, that you would minister your grace into their lives. In Jesus' name.